Welcome to the Talberg Foundation podcast series, New Thinking for a New World. Host Alan Stogo welcomes leaders from around the world to explore the issues that are challenging and changing their societies. From climate change to democracy under siege to geopolitics and beyond, we are looking for ideas that can make all our lives better. My guest today is Peter Biar Ajak, a former political prisoner from South Sudan who recently fled to asylum in the United States, steps ahead of the hit squad. In this episode of New Thinking for New World, we're going to explore why democracy and good governance are so rare in East Africa and what leaders like Peter can do to change that reality. Peter, welcome. Thank you very much. South Sudan achieved independence in 2011. Your country has a constitution that seems to hit all the right notes, democracy, separation of church and state, equality, security. Yet the reality has been no elections, insecurity, almost nonstop conflict, punctuated by peace agreements that are short-lived at best. Simple question. What went wrong? Thank you very much, uh, Alan, for hosting me for this wonderful uh, discussion. Uh, indeed, when South Sudan gained independence uh, some nine years ago, uh, our people were overjoyed. And a lot of people around the world were happy for the people of South Sudan. It was an uh, amazing achievement after enormous suffering and sacrifice uh, for that occasion to finally arrive. Uh, it was something beyond uh, what words can describe. But indeed, as you mentioned, uh, the last nine years have been absolutely awful for our people. And what went wrong is something very basic and very simple, is that we had a leadership that did not have a vision, leadership that could not organize and mobilize our people to discuss what sort of society and what sort of state that they wanted to create. And instead of shepherding our people toward a new future, the leadership became focused on entrenching itself in power, in looting resources, uh, and essentially that's what happened. We have a country now where all the governors are appointed by the president instead of being elected as it was initially enshrined in the constitution. You have a country now where the members of parliament are appointed by the president. Essentially everything and everybody that works in the government, including even in the civil service, is now appointed by the president. So we had a, a leadership that wanted to entrain itself in power. And that's what went wrong. The obvious follow-up question is, what should that vision be? What could South Sudan be? I think despite what has happened and all the terrible things that has taken place, I think the future for South Sudan is still bright. We have a very young population, and we have people that are absolutely resilient. Uh, we have shown through our long struggle that our people uh, can go that extra mile that many people cannot. And we have a country that is blessed with enormous resources. We have the Nile. We have our land. We have the oil uh, deposits uh, in the country. So the future can still be made. But the issue is, is us as people of South Sudan coming together around a sheer vision of society. It's not really about what one man can do or what one person can do, because uh, this is also part of what initially went wrong. 
Because when we fought for the liberation of South Sudan, we rallied around the vision of New Sudan. And this vision was a vision by our former leader, John Grande Mabio, who came up with the idea that the problem of Sudan was that it was built on wrong principles. It was built on domination of one religion, one ethnic group. And as a result, that country was not inclusive enough. But the problem was, our people never had a chance to actually discuss that vision and internalize it. And when Garang died, that vision died with him because it was not something that was widely shared. And I do believe what Garang has provided is an important uh, starting point and a starting point around which we can build. But at the same time, uh, is something that requires all our people to discuss, to have that discussion, to build that consensus, because that is essentially what building a state and what building a society means. It requires for people to then uh, come together, discuss, and come with a shared way forward. Let me widen the aperture slightly. South Sudan, by almost any definition, is a failed state, although the politically correct term is now fragile state. Whatever you call it, according to the Fund for Peace, 15 of the 20 most fragile states today are in Africa, mostly in East Africa and Central Africa. The question is less why than what can be done, not just in South Sudan, but more generally. Well, you know, having a constitution is one way, but part of the problem in this part of the world is that you have constitutions that are written by experts or by a few elite uh, that don't represent the views of the population. You know, the idea of constitution is, is, that, is, build, is that social contract, right? And that social contract is something that has to be negotiated by everyone, by all the people in that country. It's something that has to be widespread. We watch South Africa in the early 1990s when they went that, through that process of writing a constitution. And it was something that was uh, uh, very widely participatory. Especially when you come from history of conflict, you need that other element of having a truth and reconciliation commission so that people air out uh, the grievances that have uh, happened to them and so that people can hear that they are being listened to and that what has happened in the past uh, is going to remain there, but people learn from it and move forward. So writing a constitution is one way. But definitely in the Horn of Africa region, part of the main problem is uh, you have essentially militarized politics. All of these regions, you have elites that have come to power, uh, either through rebellion that have won. So if you take, for example, in, in Ethiopia, uh, the current regime, uh, the TPLF regime, now it has outfits calling itself the EPRDF, but we know that the real power is controlled by the Tigray elites that overthrew Mengistu uh, regime in 1991. So the same thing with the re regime in Sudan, with Omar al-Bashir coming to power uh, through a coup d'etat in 1986. Uh, so essentially you have elites that believe that military power uh, is what undercurred uh, the uh, control of power. And when they come to power through those means, they tend to then rely on those same uh, instruments to, to then wield power. So these regimes have been extremely successful at doing that. And as a result, when you do the militarized politics, essentially become politics of violence. 
because the only way in which that can be effectively challenged is through violence. And when you have violence become part of the culture, is enormously dispowering. The idea of power is something that relies on politics, ability to be able to mobilize people through consensus and through discussion. But when it becomes violence, it's extremely disempowering. And you're basically using instruments uh, to then pretend that there is politics that is taking place. So this is absolutely part of the problem. And when it takes hold, as it did in Sudan, and even now in Uganda, for, if you will, it then give birth to personality cult. So it become about worshiping a, a particular individual. You have one individual now uh, uh, pretending that the hold on power is what is required for that society to be at peace. And this logic is expanding, even in Rwanda with President Paul Kagame. You see this personality cult, uh, it, it has become a, an issue. And when you do personality cult, you're not paying attention to what actually matters, which is building institutions. So you find in these areas, institutions are individualized, they are personalized. So why are there so few examples in Africa in this modern period of countries that escape that fraught history, that escape the, the process of independence, which was driven by rebellion, revolt, by fighting, and fail to build that institutional framework, what does it take to move out of the period of militarized politics into modern politics, democratic politics, people politics? Well, you know, there are some countries, particularly in the Western Africa regions, that have been a lot more successful at the transition to democracy than we have been in our region. I think our part of, the, our part of Africa and North Africa are the, main reason, are the main regions where dictatorship is deeply rooted and is because of this militarized uh, culture. But not just only that also, you have other things uh, beyond our control that are in play. Uh, if you take, for example, uh, the Horn of Africa is extremely strategic region, uh, not just only for security, but for all sorts of uh, things. If you see, uh, you have not only the war on terrorism and the proximity to Somalia, you have the activities going on in Yemen and how Yemen now is becoming a very important ground. You have, of course, the, the Red Sea and, and, and the Gulf of Eden there, where a lot of uh, global uh, trade is moving and the issue of piracy in connection to Somalia is there. If you find in Djibouti, you have all, basically all the main great powers uh, establishing uh, military bases there. You have the Kamilomonier, you have the, 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 the Russians, the Chinese, everybody is there. President Guela of uh, Djibouti, he has been in power since 1975. And he took power from his uncle, who, uh, who was basically ruling the country with iron fists. And there he has established this nearly totalitarian uh, state with the support of all these big powers that are, uh, that are, that, that are having military bases there. So big power rivalry is another factor that has been been a, a real challenge in our part of the region. When you compare this to West Africa, of course, you still have the French influence, but for the French, is mainly about their interests, right? So if they want to get something done and they believe or they calculate that to be in the interest of France, they're going to make a move and they're going to get it done, you know? And you, you, you see this uh, in the case of Ivory Coast uh, during the, uh, the, the, the the elections between President Gbagbo and Alassane Ouattara, 
and, and France uh, move in and they were able to, to do things that uh, otherwise would have never been able to be done in our part of the region. The same thing even with uh, what recently happened in Central Africa Republic. You know, France has been there. And even countries that are stuck in dictatorship, they're stuck in dictatorship because of the interests of France. If you find, for example, like in Cameroon, with Paul Bia that has been there uh, more than 30 years now. So it's slightly different. You have a colonial master that has kept a close relationship, but a relationship that is largely determined by its needs. Whereas in our region, uh, where most of the countries there were ex-British colonies, and, and, and Britain has really pulled back uh, in any kind of engagement compared to what France has been able to do, and where U.S. has come in as this other power, but then China is coming on the other hand. So, for example, in Ethiopia, you find now Chinese businesses will move in and they will open a factory that can employ 5,000 people. That is something that cannot be ignored. So, in the end, these countries are balancing so that these countries don't side wholly with one superpower or another. And this has been a complicating factor. So whether it's great power competition among the Americans, Russians, and Chinese, or legacy power interest in the French case, how can this be changed? So what it requires in the end, in my view, it requires uh, for leaders, both at the domestic and the local level, as well as the international level, to really think about the long term. Because I think like we are all thinking about all of this from a short-term perspective. Our leaders uh, in these countries are thinking in a short-term perspective. They're thinking about maintaining power. In our case in South Sudan, it's very explicit. President Salva Kiir essentially wants to die in power. And that's what he really cares about. He doesn't really care about what happened to him or what happened to the country once he's dead. He cares more about him being in that position until he dies and avoiding any form of accountability. Whereas the big powers care about the immediate transactional interests and it has become even explicit in the last uh, three, four years. But let me interrupt because you are 100% right quite clearly. And the problem is almost no politicians today think beyond today. Transactional politics in the United States, in Europe, in Africa, are the politics of the moment. It would be wonderful if there were more leaders like Nelson Mandela who actually imagined a country after him, but there's very few like that. How do you get beyond that? How do you help a people get to where they deserve to be, despite the fact that most politicians have their own interests, their own political interests, their own future more in mind than that of, of, of their peoples. No, th unfortunately, indeed, I agree with you that uh, politics is transactional and politicians are always thinking about the election cycle. But what we have seen time and again is some of these issues uh, that may be long-term tend to also become immediate. For example, in Europe, uh, the issue of migration uh, has become a, a real problem uh, for the European countries, uh, for even the viability of the European Union. And we see this is, as one of the factors that fuel Brexit. So, and when you talk about this migration, it's not just appearing from nowhere, it's mainly coming from Africa, and it's coming from Horn of Africa, and some of these countries where people don't see any hope. So, you cannot disconnect it because this is how the immediate and the long-term issues are, are 
populated. Uh, the population is growing, it's expanding enormously in our part of the world, you know, and people are seeing what is happening in other part of the world through technologies. And as a result, they are voting with their feet because if they can't vote and express themselves in their countries, they're going to find whatever ways that they can to move on to Europe and to other parts of the world, which is also going to create a problem for those countries. So the easiest thing is, instead of Germany, what they used to do during al-Bashir, paying Bashir so that it can lock up uh, people in Sudan, that is not a solution. You know, what the solution is, helping these countries to transition. And it should be seen from a perspective of win-win from both, from both sides. It's not that Africa is being done a favor. It's that a real long-term challenges are going to be, uh, have to be addressed because population is growing, technology is continuously changing, climate change is an issue. So without economic development, without economic growth, with all these factors, these people are not going to remain there and die. They're going to find ways to get to where they think they can get better opportunities. And unless the countries in which they live change fundamentally in the approach to governance, in the approach to how they manage their economies, with people being the center of the economic strategies and economic approaches, none of this thing is going to change. And it's going to feed into crimes, it's going to feed into terrorism, it's going to feed into things like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, where West is spending billions and billions of dollars. So all of these things are related. But my point is, it's not only the West to worry about this. We also in Africa have to worry about this. Leaders have to emerge that accept risk to themselves you know it's not easy in our part of the world to speak up and to criticize the regime and to offer a better way forward you are taking risk uh, to yourself and just like what happened to me people have to accept that they may be detained or the government is going to come up to them trying to assassinate them and that is the reality if we want to see a better future for ourselves and our countries because indeed leaders in this part of africa have to take the lead they are the one that have uh, to take the courage to be able to articulate and do what the leaders in our part of the world are not doing. And that is to create platform and forums through which people can actually discuss about that kind of future that they want to build together. Because we have realized social contract is not something that is just only written and is in the constitution, but it's something that is living, that is negotiated and renegotiated uh, from generation to generation, because challenges change, need change, aspiration change. And as a result, there have to be leaders that continuously create those kind of platforms where people can continuously build consensus. I've got to say, unfortunately, that I am profoundly skeptical that the Europeans or the Americans are going to understand or be willing to act on the understanding that it is in their interest that Africa developed differently than it has. Indeed, under COVID, we've seen raised borders, declining trade and investment, shift from global to local, all of the wrong things going on all over the developed world. That, by implication, means that Africa is going to have to solve its own problems. Is there a possibility that the next generation of African leaders begin working together in the way that you suggested they need to? regardless of whether or not the rest of the world is smart enough 
uh, to provide the assistance that, as, as you argue, and I agree, is in their own best interest. Is Pan-Africa a solution? Uh, indeed, there is a space for the emerging generation of African leaders to work together. Uh, and definitely, uh, there are a lot of different platforms that are coming together to, to bring them together, to work together. But uh, in my view, uh, this pan-Africanism has just become a loose term that people don't understand anymore what it means. Uh, if you go to Juba, uh, Salva Kiir, who is heading the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, will claim that he's a pan-Africanist. Uh, the same thing if you go to even, even the regime of Zimbabwe, uh, before uh, Managagwa, uh, Robert Mugabe will say he's Pan-Africanist. If you go to Ethiopia, they will all say they are Pan-Africanist. So what does Pan-Africanist, what does Pan-Africanism mean? You know? And I think this is really where uh, I'd like to see uh, more intellectually based discussion among my generation to really think deeply about Pan-Africanism. Of course, it can't mean the same thing it means in 1960s. What it meant then, and what then ended up being done by the Organization for African Unity, was that Africa should have self-determination, that Africa should be run by Africans. It was decolonization. In my view, Pan-Africanism is about taking control taking control of ourselves and our destiny, having a different vision about our economies so that we are in control of our factors of production. We don't need the Chinese to come and run our countries the way that they are doing. Pan-Africanism is our people working, doing things, being in charge of their own development processes. And we have resources, we have capital. And as I mentioned to you before, it's not about a vision of one particular man. Now, the one man or woman can create a space around which the society then build consensus about how they move forward. But it's not that one individual that then come and provide the vision and then expect everybody to follow. People only follow if they believe that in what they are following, they see themselves in, they see their ideas in. So when we talk about Pan-Africanism, and I had this, this discussion with people like Bobby Wine in Uganda and some of my friends uh, across Africa that are, are now standing up and uh, challenging these old generations of, of Pan-Africans, it is not just about using the same terminologies and language. It's about really offering ideas that really mark the difference in time and the difference in priorities. I want to ask one last question, which picks up on several of the themes you've mentioned. Africa is incredibly young. Average age in sub-Saharan Africa is under 20. Yet most leaders are incredibly old. There's a weird gap between average age of a parliamentarian across sub-Saharan Africa and the average age of the citizen. To some extent, that reflects, as you've said, the history of how people got to power. To some extent, it reflects an inbred cultural reverence for age and wisdom. Uh, so it's both the accidents of independence and culture. What is the right balance? How do you both harvest the power and dynamism of youth, 
but blend it with the wisdom of age? You know, that is a fascinating question and is one of the areas under which I have come under intense criticism uh, because I recognize this problem in South Sudan. And yes, indeed, we have reverence for our leaders, I mean, our, our elders, uh, they are wise, uh, they, they, they are amazing. Even the one that you find in the village, they have enormous amount of wisdom. But after finishing my uh, PhD in 2017, I came up with the idea of generational exit as a solution uh, for the crisis of leadership in South Sudan. Now, people criticize me a lot, saying that it's not about one generation or another, that you, you need both generations. And I do agree. You know, There is a misunderstanding when, when, when some of us talk about generational exit or generational change. It's not that the elders should go home and sit at home and not be engaged in the affairs of the society. That is not at all what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that every once in a while, and it's not just only in African context, in any human society, there are generational challenges that come and that only has to be dealt with by a generation at the time. And it's not about them themselves mobilizing themselves to resolve that particular crisis, but they are the ones that take leadership in resolving that crisis. Yeah, the one around which the rest of the society mobilized. And as much as our uh, elders fought for the liberation, they fought for independence, they were the, not the one that did it. Like when we give credit to those of Salva Kiir and for the independence of South Sudan, it's not them alone that then won the liberation for our people. All of us contributed in one way or another. But they were around, they were the generation around which the rest of us mobilized and organized. And this is the argument that I'm making. If you look in South Sudan, uh, based on 2008 census data, 95% of the population is under the age of 45. But if you look the cabinet, 90% of the cabinet is above the age of 65. Now, that is, there is a problem with that because the challenges we are dealing with now are not the same challenges that, that those guys are best addressed, are best equipped to address. The challenges they were dealing with was how to fight an enemy so that our people can win independence. So they understand destruction, use destruction as a tool for gaining liberty. The challenge that South Sudan faced now is the challenges of rebuilding societies, literally rebuilding them. It's not about the physical building, but even emotional, the, the, the spiritual, you know, South Sudan has to be built. And these guys are not builders. They understand destruction. And it's our people in our generation that have a better idea of what it requires to build things. So we need the youth, the emerging leaders to take the lead while the, the elders and the rest of the people organize around us and help so that we are able to collectively achieve this. I think that's a wonderful way to end this conversation. Thank you, Peter. I'm glad that you and your family are safe. Um, I'm also glad that you are obviously thinking about the future and how to make South Sudan and indeed Africa a better place to realize its potential 
which is far from its reality. So thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. And I want to thank everyone who's listening to this New Thinking for a New World podcast and encourage you to tell us what you think. What do you think about Peter's ideas? What do you think about the notion of building consensus as the platform on which you can build a country? How does that apply not just to East Africa, to South Sudan, but to your own country? Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.